This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. Feedback loops and macho flops. Dr. Ann Fitzpatrick joins me this week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening in to another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research, distributed in partnership with HPC Wire. I'm Addison Snell, and in a special episode of This Week in HPC, I'm joined this week by Dr. Ann Fitzpatrick, who's the Senior Technical Director at the U.S. Department of Defense. Ann, thanks very much for joining me on this podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Addison. We're going to be talking about a new book that's out that you contributed a chapter to. But to start off, can you tell our listeners a little more about your role and your history with high-performance computing in government and academia? Certainly, Addison. So I go way back in in this in the HPC field in many senses of that, um, beginning when I was um, a graduate student at the Virginia Tech Program in Science and Technology Studies, which I got my PhD in. In case people don't know what that field is, um, Science and Technology Studies, or STS, it's a a unique program. There's only a few of these in the U.S., and what they do is they take students and teach them both the hard sciences and the social sciences. So, like, my uh, dissertation director, my chair, was a, a... professor of philosophy of technology, and yes, there is such a field. And so you would learn things like philosophy, uh, sociology of science, and and the like, a lot of history. I liked history. And um, I ended up um, finishing all my coursework, and by some stroke of luck, I got a graduate a student fellowship at Los Alamos National Laboratory, where I was an apprentice to a, a uh, retired, he's probably deceased now, a secondary designer. And and um, from there, I got interested in computers, because as we know, a lot of the early computing days, the national labs um, drove the, the, the creation of those, and, you know, Cray and IBM, et cetera, made their fortunes from those places. And so, got interested in it, and I wrote a thesis, in fact, on the history of the H-bomb, and how um, that uh, research effort drove early compute. And so it just kind of took my interest and I stayed stayed with it for a long time. Um, from there, I got my degree. I spent some time postdocing. Um, I went to the University of Minnesota for a year. And then I ended up um, going to um, George Washington University for a few years where I was a postdoc and then became research faculty. And um, from there, I ended up getting a, I wanted to do something you know, beyond my, I thought I'd spend my career in academia, but I wanted to do something uh, beyond my dissertation, and ended up getting a National Science Foundation fellowship and an IREX fellowship to go live in Moscow and Kiev for a year, where I went from 2000 to 2001, and I edited a book on um, the history of Soviet computing, and you can get it online. It's it's uh, downloadable. It's free. If anyone wants the URL, I can send you guys that, but um, from there, I ended up going back to Los Alamos um, in the early 2000s and um, was working in the um, computer and computational sciences division, then gradually wound my way back to the East Coast and I ended up um, working for the Department of Energy for a while, uh, looking at foreign uh, foreign achievements in in um, HPC, just, you know, just to keep our own uh, our own industry and, and government efforts competitive. You know, a lot of people got really worried about China, and and I think they don't need to be as much now in that field. But for a while, as everybody knows, you know, the Chinese went from having what zero machines in 2000 to hundreds of them in in within like 10 to 15 years. And so, um, 
you know, bounced around some different jobs, and um, I ended up most recently at, at DOD, and I'm doing similar work like that now. I look at future technologies to avoid science and technology surprise for the most part. Um, and the book, uh, the book was something I can, you know, I can address here, or I can, you know, we can talk about something else, whatever you want to do. <laughs> well, I do want to talk about the book, and I appreciate your history in high-performance computing. One thing I love about this industry is that the state of change is relatively constant as we continue to push the boundaries of capability and scientific discovery, but I think it's also really worthwhile to understand the historical context of supercomputing and how some of these things are cyclical and come in waves. Now, we're here talking about a new book called feedback loops. The subtitle is Pragmatism about science and technology, and it's a collection of individually contributed chapters. Your chapter is the first chapter in the book. First, tell me how your involvement with this book came about. Sure. So the, the book is actually, it, it's um, a collection of essays of various topics that have to do with technology. And it's really a, an homage to Professor Joseph Pitt at Virginia Tech. He, um, in academia, you know, and I hold a, a part-time adjunct position at Virginia Tech. I have for a long time, which I, I do teach occasionally and, and research. And um, Professor Pitt um, we a couple of years ago, several of his former students who've gone on to do various things, many are in academe. Um, I think I'm the only one that went to the government, but they decided to get together and and um, do some. We we're going to do a conference in honor of him. Um, he he's, he has quite a few students that have have done a lot of um, interesting and um, good projects and have ended up um, doing a lot of different. Um, teaching positions and, and such. And um, we thought, you know, we owe him something. And usually when, when you have a beloved professor like that, they get to a certain point in their life and they're going to retire. And he's, I believe he's retiring this year. And so the idea was to hold a conference and people would write a, everybody would write a paper and then eventually publish a volume that has a, all the chapters have a, a tone that talks to how he influenced our work and our thinkings, things like this. And so um, so the conference didn't happen with COVID, but the book, it, the, and it put the book, I think, behind schedule by about a year, but it was on the, his two former students, Ashley Shu, and she teaches in the philosophy department at Virginia Tech to this day, and um, Andrew Garner, who I believe is at the university as Arizona State um, teaching, they reached out and um, asked if I would want to contribute to this book. And um, and I had I thought about it. I was like, yeah, this would be great because um, what I had been wanting to publish a piece on HPC, and this came out of this came out of the twenty. I don't know if you remember this, but in twenty twelve. Um, the U.S. Congress in the National Defense Authorization Act, I was working at the Department of Energy at the time, they had asked for a net assessment of, of high-performance computing with many, many questions asking where the U.S. stood compared to other countries. And it was a, it was a fairly substantial chunk of, of legislation. And so um, making a long story short, um, I volunteered to lead that study, and it was actually, they'd asked the Office of Director of National Intelligence and, to do it, and it got assigned to me when I was at the Energy Department. And so um, there were many of us um, in the government that got together, and we did this study, and I, it's still pretty relevant, even though it's about eight years old now, but it was about a 20-page, totally unclassified 
study that um, looked at where other countries stood compared to the United States, because people were getting worried at that point, especially with the Chinese achievements in HPC, and they were just building and building and building. Um, and my partner on that study was was Candace Culhane, whom I'm sure you know, who was in, um, working up for the Department of Defense. And we got we worked we worked this, we published it, and we um, had a series of writing seminars and things like this. And and then we, you know, when it was finished, it got turned into Congress, and um, it did help influence the signing of the 2015 National Strategic Computing Initiative, which is still on the table, as I understand, down at the White House. And I hope maybe it'll get revived at some point. It was a really, it was a really intense project, and and um, I hope maybe something will come out of it with an, you know, new new people there, new administrations, and all. And so, but I, I wanted to do a follow up, and I never really had quite the platform to do a follow up, you know, where would I publish something like this? And so when Ashley and Andrew came and said, do you want to do a book chapter? I had already written a lot of it. And I said, that'd be great. I just need to kind of tweak it to talk to how Professor Pitt was an influence on me. And, and it really, he really was. And, and so that's why it has that sort of theme through it. And it's not just about HBC, but it's about his, his influence on my work. Yeah, I've had the chance to testify myself about the role of U.S. versus China in supercomputing. It's definitely a perpetual issue, but I'm very, I was very interested reading your chapter about the influence of Professor Pitt, and you made reference to a, a philosophy course that, that he taught that was mandatory for your graduate-level STS, Science and Technology Studies, at Virginia Tech, and talking about the Vienna School of Philosophy. Can you talk about why that was impactful and how you saw it as relevant to high performance computing, where, where it's relevant today? Well, it's definitely relevant to, to um, I think, science and, and truth. And, and what, you know, the Vienna School of Philosophy um, was from the, they're writing in the 20s and 30s. And, and it was, it was, um, you know, I didn't know anything about it till I got to this graduate class. And, and when I, when I got to Joe, Joe's class was a, um, we call him Joe by his first name, but his class was mandatory. And when I started in the science technology studies program, I was all of, I don't know, 21 years old. And, and so, and I hadn't really experienced that much of the world. You know, I'd done my undergrad, but um, it was, it was a real eye opener for me. And, and, you know, and just getting to college for me and, and especially grad school was a major, major thing because my family was not that educated and they didn't understand the value of that. And of course, you know, my parents, um, we're Great Depression kids, and they lived through World War II. And back then, you didn't need to get a degree to get a good job. My father got out of, uh, was a Marine in World War II at Peleliu, and um, got out. He learned air traffic controlling, and he was an air traffic controller for all his career. And so, um, anyway, I was lucky. I got to go to college, um, and I got into uh, Professor Pitt's class. And Professor Pitt, by then, was renowned throughout the Virginia Tech campus as a um, dangerous professor, you might say, is he practiced what some call uh, what um, in the feedback loops book intro talks about his view, his um, views of Sicilian realism. He's Sicilian by by heritage, and he calls it realism with a vengeance. And realism is a form of philosophy, and it meant that in his undergraduate classes, and to a degree in his graduate classes, the students. He'd have a big lecture hall, and he'd you know he'd throw chalk at you if you, you said something he disagreed with. But he was just trying to force you to think and get out of your comfort zone. And it was it was the same in his graduate class. There were about maybe twelve people in it. You had a paper due every week, and you're reading this stuff. If you ever looked at the Vienna School, um, some of the works of Karl Popper and um, those folks, they, it's it's a lot of the books 
are written in what somewhat looks like logic, mathematical formulas. And well, what they were doing, they, they wanted to get to what they considered the truth. And, and they felt like, you know, science does have some kind of ground truth to it. And and I believe that. And, and there, there, you know, there's some fuzziness in there. We, later on, you know, we took courses that you learned that, you know, we're you know, women and minorities are left out of the, those histories of science and things like that. And, but there is some, there is something to it. Um, and the course was not just a course; it was, it was a performance. And, and the, the, the bottom line was, uh, Joe was very, um, very fond of his students. And if you get through his course, you know, you hated him while you were taking it. But his students grew to really love him, and he genuinely cared about us. And after that, I asked him to be my thesis director, even though. Um, what I was going to work on wasn't something he did. He was actually a um, scholar of Galileo and, and Galileo's um, telescopes and things like this. And it's very interesting in its own right. But I learned leadership from him and I learned how to think critically and to write. And um, in my case as a woman, he taught me that he said to me, you're going to need to sit down and, and argue harder than others, everyone else in the room. Others, others are going to dismiss you and try to shut you down. And, and he had no kids of his own. And so all of his students and especially the folks that were the contributors to this this feedback loops um, were he considers his kids and um, he taught me more importantly than anything I think to question my assumptions and I'm still I'm still amazed at how in engineering and tech design to this day almost no one does this um, and my feeling is you know everyone in engineering should be required to take a philosophy or ethics class in undergrad in the freshman year because you if you don't get them freshman year you're never going to get to them and and so um Joe was really a big influence on me. And there, there was another person, if I may um, talk about, who was also a big influence on me. And it wasn't about this in, in my chapter. But once I, when I ended up at the George Washington University, on a, initially on a postdoc, and it turned into a research um, professorship there, um, I got, I had the privilege of working with the late Horace Freeland Judson, um, who he, at the time he was running the Center for uh, History of Recent Science at GW. And Horace, um, Horace was really something else. He, um, you probably have not heard of him because he was working in a different field, but he was, um, he had written this book called The Eighth Day of Creation that came out around 1979 or so. And it was a, it was a Pulitzer nominee book and he didn't win the Pulitzer, but he actually went on to be a MacArthur Genius Fellow. And Horace was, Horace was an incredibly gifted writer. Um, if you want to know a little more about him, you can, you can Google his um, obituary. He died in, I think, 2011. And um, I still miss him to this day. He taught me to write. He had a big, um, he would come into the office two or three days a week, but Horace would, um, he would have his postdocs, there was only a few of us, come up, he had a big mansion up on West University Parkway in Baltimore, and if you know anything about Baltimore, that's an old old school, beautiful neighborhood. Um, and, and he, we would have these writing seminars every week and he was just a lot of fun. He was eccentric and prickly, but he was, he just taught me so much about writing and I could never give anything back for that. I don't know what I would do, but he just, he was just an amazing person and he, he was very eccentric and he used to throw some really fun parties and dinners. And, um, he was a widower at the time too. So, you know, we, we kept him company and I learned a lot about him, but 
if you can Google him on the internet, he's led a very interesting life. He was a writer for time and, and he gave me so much. I, I just don't know what I could ever give back, but that helped me with the writing part of everything. And, and again, thinking, and, and of course, criti- better, more critical thing, you just a very different experience than, than um, working with professor Pitt. So it just luckily set me up to be able to tap, you know, take on this topic and, and, write about it in a way um, that, you know, has a philosophical tone. It questions, you know, where we're going. It's just, a, the whole point is to, you know, make people think. That's what I like to do. And and make people think about, you know, what's in the future. Um, going back to the, the logical positivists, they were, they were escaping um, uh, fascism. You know, this was the time, the 30s was the time when, you know, Hitler was on the rise. And they ended up, the, the writings were really about freedom and really about um, um, getting to the ground truth. And most of them actually had to flee um, Europe and, and many came to America or England because a lot of them were Jewish or partly Jewish and um, they were scared for their lives. And so, but this was, again, and, and, and I guess I, I glammed onto that recently, maybe two or three years ago, and started thinking about that course because of, of you know, the last few years seem like there's just been such a lot of skepticism in science and technology. Maybe not so much technology because we take that for granted, you know, with our phones and everything you do with Amazon Echo and all. But it's, but this, you know, real ground truth in science. And, and that's really scary if people, you know, people don't want to try to understand that. I mean, you don't have to be, have a PhD in physics or something, but I'm saying just not to listen to science. I'm look at the, look at the, um, you know, with COVID and, and people aren't believing in the science in that, you know, those of us who do, you know, we, we're, we cling to Dr. Fauci and all just for some, some truth and some, some comfort even, you know, but I, the fact that that's been under, you know, that seems like it's been under attack in the last several years and, and there's so much, you know, ignorance. And I, it's a scary, I don't know, just a scary time. And so it got me thinking, I know there's been, I think I read in The Economist a, a year or two ago, there's been a lot of renewed interest in some of the writings of the, the logical positivists because we seem to be going through some kind of, some kind of period, uh, you know, that was, that was, you know, there's just a lot of uncertainty and a lot, you know, in the economy and a lot of things just feel wrong. And so that's kind of how that all came about. I appreciate that history and the background of taking a philosophy course. I took one in my undergraduate, and it's it's really uh, important to expand how we think about uh, how we think about problems, how we think about uh, advancement. Now, let's get to the supercomputing in particular. Your chapter is titled "The Pursuit of Macho Flops," and you spend some time talking about the top 500 list, the Linpack benchmark, and the state of supercomputing, particularly the competitive nature of the United States versus China. What do you mean by macho flops in that title? And how, do, how does that pursuit, how does the pursuit of macho flops affect the high performance computing landscape? Right. Um, so, so the title was meant to be catchy, of course, you know, but, but I learned the term macho flops from Candace Culhane when I worked for her. I ended up after we did the 2012 study, she asked me to come and work for her. And so I did for about a year and a half. And um, in the government, you can do, um, if, if there's a need for a skill set, one agency can loan a person out to another agency and they get reimbursed for it. And that's what we did. And so we were working on a future computing project together um, where she was. And we we shared an office. And I learned the term macho flops from her. And I did some 
homework on it. And it turns out apparently it's an old industry term where um, the vendors would go around to um, the clients and, and they would say, oh, so-and-so is just selling you macho flops. They say they've got more flops than we do. And it's just, you know, it's just, it was a competitive competing with one another kind of term that the industry, but I just, it kind of stuck, you know, and it, and, but, but there's some, there's some truth it, and it's supposed to be funny, but there's some serious undertone to it. It's, it's really what I think macho flops is something more of an attitude. And for too long, there has been, such a myopic focus on being number one on the top 500 list, especially 10, 15 years ago. I think that's changing now. And even as the course of when I was writing this, I think that's changed in the last couple of years. But people, there there were some entities within the HPC world that they were, they were just hell-bent on getting to be the number one spot on the top 500 list with not a lot of regard to how well their machine worked or it's actually utility. And I, I know you know all this, but but it's it's really about how well that machine performs as opposed to, you know, how fast it, how it does on the Linpack benchmark, which has become, you know, as we both know, more and more called into question. I mean, I, I know it's still the standard of, of how we measure a machine's performance, but um, I think eventually there's going to be better, you know, more accurate um um, standards created, and there there are others out there like the Green 500 and all that. But I think we still have that um, Linpack benchmark as the main one, and it's still I think the cultural accepted thing to use it. I mean, I was involved. I wasn't. I was peripherally involved, I should say, um, when I was uh, working at a certain institution. I'll just say out west. I'm not going to give any more detail, but there was a vanity project in the early 2000s that um, there was just one of these things, and it was it was. By the time the um, components were shipped and assembled, it was already out of date and it was a spectacular failure. I was working there and witnessed all that, but the idea was it was supposed to be this cool thing that could be on the top 500 list. And and there have been other instances of this. Um, but I have to say, I, I've noticed in the last couple of years, especially um, with you know, changes in HPC and there's an increased focus on artificial intelligence projects and data computing and cloud, that macho flops attitude is starting to go away. I think people are starting to recognize and look beyond it. I, I had a really fabulous conversation at work with somebody this past week telling me some of the things they're doing in data computing and figuring out ways how, how HPC can be can support um, data-focused computing um, and, and all kinds of big tech. And, and I think um, I think people are finally starting to get past the whole macho flops attitude. And that's a good thing. We need to. It's something we've talked about before. Now, I think Linpack does have its place. And I like that the top 500 list encourages us to keep chasing that new frontier of capability. I think it is a worthwhile debate sometimes to look at, all right, which will have more utility for the country, designing one exaflop system, or would you rather have a thousand petascale systems, or would you rather have a million terascale systems to deploy around the world, and which one really has more utility? I think that's a worthwhile debate to talk about. And you you mentioned in your, in your chapter, talking about the U.S. versus China, not only at that apex level, but China having 
200 some systems on the top 500 list right now and and uh, intersect 360 research has talked publicly about how the majority of those now are aren't really true hpc systems they're subsets of hyperscale systems that go into these hyperscale organizations that's part of your chapter as well talking about hyperscale and ai the influence of these fang companies and uh, and we're at an inflection point now with ai in terms of what it means for high performance computing uh, you know where do you see that right now in terms of this newest capability with ai and how it's influencing hpc or society as a whole mm, yeah you know it's it's um it's funny i mean it's 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 exciting stuff right it's really i mean we're ai you know ai is a it seems like everyone's writing about it right now and in my, my office we talk about it all the time and and you know i think in the in the department of defense and i'm not again none of this is the opinion of the Department of Defense. It's my personal opinion, um, but the, but there is a lot of concern about um, AI and and you know if if you're going to have AI powered weaponry and and you know aircraft and and things um, that can harm people, you know there's there's a lot of ethical issues there, and people are working on trying to come to terms with that or how we're going to deal with that. Um, but AI, I think AI has a long way to go. You know, it's it's AI is not one. People talk about it like it's one sentient entity or something. It's actually, as you know, it's a set of subfields of research, you know, and machine learning and, and all these other things. And and they're still they still have a long way to go to be what I would call a mature technology. And um and people, you know, there's definitely not enough people to work on them or have the, the skill set. And it's it's um before it's really mature, there's some time has to pass and, and we have to make the investment in it. And, and I think, I think private equity is, and I think venture capital is, and, um, and, and, you know, what's happening, something I've noticed, and I don't know if others have noticed this, but when in tracking like the top 500 list for the last 15 or so 20 years now, um, you know, you had, you had this spike where China, after 2000, all of a sudden they're having more machines. And as you say, you know, a lot of them, are not maybe true HPC or they're, you know, they didn't, they didn't have as big an impact or they're not that well used or something. But now the numbers I've noticed, like in the last um, top 500 ranking in November, the numbers are starting to go down. And so they don't have as many and the U S didn't have as many. And, and you see other countries, um, Saudi Arabia and countries who haven't really seen on, on that, um, list before starting to come up. So it's getting to the point, you know, whereas HPC seems to be, it's, it's saturated or it's mature enough, or it's, it's, it's come to a point where countries, um, who can afford it, you know, they're focusing they're investing in other things. And that's where, you know, these, these hyperscale companies, you know, the, I like to call them the FANG companies, right? That's what Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, I believe. And, you know, they're, they're really, they're forcing some change in some way. And it's, it's, um, you know, that's where the money is and, and the, the economics and, and the, the money involved. And I think it's forcing, you know, changes to, you know, how the HPC world has to react to that, but they're also impacting society in a lot of ways. I mean, um, one of the other 
biggest people who's had an influence on my own work was the late Clay Christensen, I'm sure you you know very well, who published in 1979, The Innovator's Dilemma. And that's the whole theory of technology and disruptive innovation and technology, where the idea is you have a big established company. And I think he used uh, the automakers is one of his examples in his book and and how um, in the 70s, the uh, U.S. auto industry was in bad shape and the products they they the cars they put out were in, in bad they fell apart and but they didn't see the, the the challenge from the Japanese and you had this little startup company called Honda and who started selling very inexpensive basic cars on uh, initially on the west coast and then all of a sudden you know they're taking over and they didn't see that coming well you know this this happens in all kinds of industries too and and I think that you know looking at the you know the the HPC proper industry and all these companies, there's been so much consolidation in, um, you know, there used to be Cray, it was bought by HPE. There used to be other startups like um, Thinking Machines, I'm thinking way back, you know, and others, but definitely there's a lot of consolidation and and the FANG companies, you know, they're they're pushing out things like what people want, you know, and the, and Clay Christensen described this phenomenon as customer capitalism where, um, you and I and, you know, our kids and everybody, they, you got to have that next $1,200 iPhone the day it comes out. It's they want to delight their clients with the next shiny object. And people have come to expect that, you know, that they want the newest gaming console, um, 3D TVs. That's, that's what's driving, that's what's driving the economics of this. And and look, you know, think about the cash that, that these companies have. They're, they're so focused on return on net assets and, quarterly results and it's one thing the Chinese don't worry about and and they can look they can have a longer term view than we have um, that's something to be be wary of um, I think about the fang company like they call the shots in many ways you know who was able to silence President Trump in the last week it wasn't Congress initially right it was Twitter it's it's a uh, so it's it'll be interesting to see where this all ends up uh, I agree with you on a, a few of those counts. First of all, that, that the Chinese culture tends to take a much longer, uh, long-term strategic view of things. There's there's an old joke about asking this uh, Chinese economist what effect he thought the French Revolution had on the world, and his reply is, too soon to tell. Uh, when I testified about the role of the U.S. versus China in supercomputing, I pointed out that China has been a world leader in science and technology for more than 40 out of the last 50 centuries. So if you take a long view, they certainly have capability for this sort of thing. And um, and I also really appreciated your view on the hyperscale companies. That's something we've published on in the past, that it's rare in human history that so much power and influence has been concentrated into so few companies. It hasn't happened in the technological era prior to now. It, it really hasn't happened, I would say, since the late Industrial Revolution. And uh, in the long run, it's never been stable. So we'll see how it continues to evolve. Uh, another thing that I liked about your chapter is that you felt free to express certain opinions. Now, some would say that maybe some of them were were uh, political. I, on careful reading, I don't think it was political as much as it was pro-science. And if anything, there's a bit of a lament that being pro-science should be viewed as being political. And, and maybe some of that comes out a little bit. And it's interesting to me because this book was published 
prior to the most recent U.S. presidential election and certainly prior to the events since leading up to the inauguration for uh, President-elect Joe Biden. Can you talk a little bit about the current and pending political climate and, and how you see that relating to your chapter or to technology and scientific research? Sure. You know what? The book, and indeed, you're, you're right. The book, my chapter, I mean, was not, and the book itself was not meant to be political in any way. It is pro-science. It is pro-technology. But again, it's it's to make, to get folks to think about, you know, where we are at this point in time and where we want to be as a nation and as a culture. And, and again, you, you mentioned a minute ago, like Chinese culture and, and, you know, really, we don't spend enough time thinking about these things. You know, we're so, it, it's so competitive and it's, everything's tech and everybody wants to get ahead. It's, it's important, you know, and where I work, we have, um, we have a lot of people who, um, speak some of these languages and thing, and they they, you know, they're able to understand the culture. It's it's we don't have enough of that anymore. And and to kind of look back in history and look at trends, it's it's, it's important. And it would, you know, and I think it's good to be reflective about you know where we're going as a nation. And and you know, I'm, I'm a patriot, and and you know, I want to see our country. Um, you know, do well and and you know, d- defend itself and be prosperous you know, have prosperity and people to be, but again, and it's, it's, it's this, there just um, seems to be just such a, I don't know, in recent years, just such a, such a disturbing um, presence of, you know, dumbing down of our society. And I don't think there's a single fault to that. I'm not saying it's some politician's fault. I don't think that's it, but there's, there's a lot of things at work, I think. And again, that's the last four years renewed my interest in the Vienna circle and, and, you know, trying to get people to think that science is a good thing. You know, it's, it's, um, I'm, I'm really convinced though, that the, some of the fascist predilections we're seeing in the U S now are related to the growing gap between those who understand how science works and believe that it's the answer. It, that could be the answer to how humanity can overcome ignorance and racial bias and these things that we're suffering from um you know we, we all have biases as human beings in one way or another um and and those who refute science too my, my hope i guess is that the next four years we'll see some renewed faith in science and we've got a long way to go um you know the government i feel um and again this is me speaking as an individual they need to make some kind of investment in basic K through 12 level STEM education in a big way in order to grow the next generation of people who can understand and and want to work in these fields and and pay them enough money. I mean, the private sector is going to have to step up as well. They have so much money. Um, Apple, I was thinking of Apple, you know, made a, what I think was a nice hopeful move with its new developer center. It's going to set up in Detroit and, and target a certain set of the population. And um, we need to do more like that. I've often thought, you know, with the, the way looking at HPC over the last 20 years and where it's gone and where it might be going is, you know, look at some other other fields of science, like biology, for example. We've made incredible, um, you know, strides in the biological sciences in the last 20 years. But, you know, it took, uh, it was about 20 years ago, I think, more or less, that, it, um, you know, they were trying to map the human genome. And, and, you know, I think the NIH was very involved in that. Energy Department had a piece of that. But it took private money and, and you know, Craig Venter, right? He put up his private money and he was able to pull that off relatively fast. And you have, today you have like the Gates, um, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, 
basically privately funding the cure for malaria. And I think they, they're there, or they're almost there at this point. And, you know, it might be the case in big compute that it's going to take some kind of um, private sector, um, you know, charity or whatever, you know, wherever it comes from to kind of maybe, um, you know, fund the education or fund what the next big um, discovery in it is, or maybe to push, you know, you have, you have a, you have this kind of notion of there's, traditional classical compute, you know, um, general purpose computing, then you have data computing, and they're kind of two separate things. And, you know, can we afford both? Probably not. But is there a way to someone to really start pushing together towards that Ubicomp model? And it might be a private entity needs to do that. I don't know. I, I don't know the answer. But I'm hoping, you know, with new, you know, it's new people in Washington, and, you know, new thinking about it, we'll be able to we'll be able to get to that at some point. In the interest of pursuing conversation and expansive thought, we're always happy to hear about from our listeners. And what do you think on these topics at our Twitter at tag this week in HPC? I've been speaking with Dr. Ann Fitzpatrick, the senior technical director at the U.S. Department of Defense. The book is called Feedback Loops, Pragmatism About Science and Technology, with a chapter called The Pursuit of Macho Flops. And thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you, Addison. And thanks to you for listening in. You've been listening to This Week in HPC. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. For more information, visit intersect360.com.